You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. to ask you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. You know, the reality is life is filled with various aspirations from various people. If you're young here today, perhaps a child's a living home with your parents, your greatest aspiration right now in life is to get a smartphone. Right now, you're elbowing your parent like, see, he gets me. If you're a teenager in high school, your greatest aspiration is to be done with school. Others of you perhaps are done with school, but now you're in trade school, and your greatest aspiration is to figure out what trade do you want to pursue in trade school. Do you want to be an electrician? Do you want to be a plumber? Do you want to be a carpenter? What exactly do you want to do? If you're in college, as some of you decide, and maybe you were like me, just going, I just would like to have clarity that my major is the final decision, as I had five different majors, four different universities, over seven years wandering. Others of you aspire and desire to actually get a good job, and maybe having had a job, already get a better job, more money, more freedom, more remote location possibilities. Others of you perhaps desire to be able to get married, move from singleness to the companionship of a lifelong partner, a husband or a wife to whom you're wed to, and desire if God designs to have children by birth or by adoption. Others of you are hoping that maybe just one day, perhaps, you won't have to rent anymore and you can actually buy a house in Miami. Seems so far for so many. Others of you are thinking, no, it's not that. I look forward to having grandkids. I've checked all those other boxes. I just look forward to grandkids and I cannot help but to be kind of a puppet master to my children. Have you looked at him? Have you looked at her? Have you decided this? When are you guys having kids? Whoa, mom, dad, dial it back. Others of you perhaps are like, I just want to retire, and ideally, I'd love to retire young, financially secure. Others are like, I've retired, I've checked that box, I want to have youthful vigor and physical capacity all the days of my life and be strong and able-bodied. But what happens in life if you've accomplished the thing you set yourself out to do of greatest hope and you're done? It comes early, earlier than you expected perhaps. You have a sense of disappointment. The thing you had longed so much for, it finally came and didn't seem as satisfying as you originally had thought. There's actually a special category that happens for astronauts in this regards. Astronauts are like the people who like tell brain surgeons in like a kind of a dinnertime conversation, oh, bless your heart. The rest of us use brain surgery as like the ultimate. Astronauts are like, they mean well. They haven't just lived life here, they've lived beyond, lived life beyond here. And there's a category for some NASA astronauts over the years that they've documented that they go into a, a sense of funk, a sense of despair, a depression. Because it's like there's nothing left to do. They have now accomplished seemingly everything could possibly be given to them. One such example is Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut who walked in the moon with Neil Armstrong. After he had been there and done that, literally on the moon, he came back and eventually retired. 
After 20 years in the military as a decorated officer and seven years with NASA, having actually flown to the moon and walked on it, he came back and he struggled greatly. Documents how he went into a despair and struggled with alcohol addiction. He says later in one of his writings, quote, I wanted to resume my duties, but there was no duties to resume. There was no goal, no sense of calling, no project worth pouring myself into. Friends, I submit to you this morning, the greatest goal you could ever put before yourself is not the career you'll have, the possession you'll come to acquire, the relationship you can secure. The greatest aspiration any person who exists today can have is to be reconciled with their creator. But the question begs the question, what if you've already done that? What if you can say, hey, God and me, we're good? Not because of anything I have done, but because of what God has provided for me I'm secure. I've kind of done that. Does it go into a sense of meaninglessness? Well, I submit to you it does not. What we see from our scripture this morning is that when we look at Paul's instruction in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks to us about having been crucified with Christ. And how life seemingly since then is just beginning. All of the possibilities still to come. If you're taking notes this morning, let me just kind of give you the spoiler alert of the main point of our time together in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. It's the following. Understanding the gospel clearly brings comfort to you for the rest of your life. Understanding the gospel clearly brings comfort to you for the rest of your life. And in this text that we're about to look at together, we're going to learn why you need gospel clarity and secondly, why you want gospel comfort. Why you need gospel clarity and why you want gospel comfort. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. I want to reiterate what's been extended to you. We're working our way through the book of Galatians I'm going to back up a few verses this morning that kind of give us a running start for our text. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul, writing here to the churches in Galatia, referring to a man named Cephas, who's also a name for Peter, the famous apostle. Paul says about Peter the following, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, then here's our text for today, verses 15 to 21. Continuing in his conversation with Peter, it says in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. 
but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. We'll stop there for right now, continuing in just a minute. Let's learn in these verses, verses 14 to 18, why you need gospel clarity. Why you need gospel clarity. Now, let me just again remind you, having just heard it yourself, in verse 14, Paul relays to the churches in Galatia of a conversation he had with Peter. It wasn't a private conversation, it was a public conversation. He's confronting Peter publicly because Peter's leading others astray publicly. So not only does Peter need to be set straight, but so does everybody else, including Barnabas and others. Their conduct is not set with the gospel. What happens in verse 15, the conversation continues. What you see here is that Paul and Peter have something in common. You could say Paul and Peter are recovering Pharisees. Paul literally. Peter, as a Jewish person, and by his previous belief, principally both recovering Pharisees. The Pharisees, just by understanding, would be people who believe that God loved them because God accepted them because of what they did to keep God's law. And what you see here in the text in verses 15 and 16 is that Paul reminds Peter, hey, we have, you and I have a shared history and we have a shared belief. Look back at the text in verse 15. It says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, Paul is grabbing a hold of language that's not in any way self-righteous or condescending or patronizing towards those who are not Jewish. He's simply grabbing at the language that would have been very common for a, by default, a Jewish person would have thought then about other people who are not Jewish. Kind of like, hey, God loves us and he does not love them. We are God's chosen, and well, they are not, and they are sinners. And Paul is telling Peter, hey, we have this shared history together. Peter, you and I understand. We're from the same neighborhood. We're from the same background. We grew up in the same type of grandparents and parents. We understand the same type of practices. But it's not just a shared history. It's also a shared knowledge. Look, if you will, at verse 16. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now, he's not just saying we to the church of Galatia. He's saying this to Peter. And to understand this, keeping your finger in the Galatians chapter 2 chapter, go to the left in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. For those of you who are new to Christianity, particularly new to the Bible, the book of Acts is written by a man named Luke, the same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke. And he's writing it to the same audience, a guy named Theophilus. And he basically is a medical doctor who's taken time away from his practice to go actually investigate who Jesus actually is. He's heard claims secondhand, but he wants to see it and know it firsthand as he gets to know the disciples. And the book of Acts, Luke is chronicling kind of in a historical record as an eyewitness, all these things are taking place in the history of the church. 
Acts chapter 15 is an interesting cameo for a couple of reasons. One, it gives us a historical recounting of this conversation that Paul's writing about in Galatians. It actually talks about it and even Peter's role in it. So if you would indulge with me, Acts 15, starting in verse 1, here we go. But some men came from Judea and were teaching the brothers, what were they teaching them? The following, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Salvation by circumcision. Verse two, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles, that would include Peter, and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the part of the Pharisees, so that's their background, but they're Christians, but that's their background from this Pharisaical background, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, referring to these Gentile new Christians, in order to keep the law of Moses. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, who stands up? Peter. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, like an extra requirement, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's Peter weighing in on this discussion at the church in Jerusalem. Peter, like homeboy, right-hand man to Jesus himself. That's Peter saying, Paul and Barnabas are right and you know new Christians are believing these wrong people who are not Christians that it's not as if the Old Testament lost what you must do. I say this because you go back to Galatians chapter two. Paul is picking up on this. He's like, Peter, you know. You know this yourself. He's reminding Peter of what he forgot himself by his actions. And now we arrive in verse 16 at what is the most significant text in all of Galatians. Galatians chapter two, verse 16. It is the key that unlocks the rest of this letter to the churches in Galatia. The term justify is used eight times in Galatians, three times in this one verse alone, and in three different ways. Let's go look back at it, verse 16. A person, here comes the first way, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
Then he says again, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Uh, Just to recognize (laughs) what's happening in Galatians is true as well for you and for me. Sometimes we are thick-headed and have to be taught repetitively to just get into our head for the first time. Paul is describing the reality of this. Now, there's this kind of two different phrases that are repeatedly common in the text. I want to make sure we leave no one behind here. Works of the law and justify. Works of the law is simply just a, a description, a biblical description of like, hey, all of the Bible in the Old Testament, you know, like all that stuff in Leviticus, all that stuff in Numbers and Deuteronomy, all, everything that's there, everything that the prophet Isaiah is talking about, Hosea is talking about, what do we do with that? Are we just supposed to double down like there's 490 commands and you're doing pretty well, you're at 185, but you got some room to grow and if you get enough on your record, you'll be okay. No, 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 Paul says. That's not how one is justified, by the works of the law, by what you do to fulfill the Bible. You know, the Ten Commandments, let's just start there since that's sort of the the foundation, if you will. Kind of building on the Shema, the text in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Ten Commandments, and so you can sort of measure yourself off the Ten Commandments. If you do enough of those, you do them long enough, then God will forgive you. Peter's saying no. Paul's saying no. Come this term justify, what does it mean, this term justify? The reality, and perhaps for some of you here today as Christians, many Christians don't know and maybe don't even care what this word means. They've been told such simple truths like God loves you. And you're like, that's good enough for me. I can just got to move on from there. As long as God loves me, I'm good. But how and why? This term justify is the foundation. It's like a time when a man was asked to explain the difference between the words ignorance and apathy. To which he replied, I don't know and I don't care. Which is actually answering the question. Christians should not say that about the doctrine of justification. You should guard yourself from the temptation to think, well, this is something for some professor in some classroom somewhere for teachers who want to maybe be Bible teachers, pastors of churches. Every Christian should understand the teaching of justification. You think about the reality of when someone's charged a crime. When you're charged with a crime... If it's significant enough of a crime, a jury trial is scheduled. A jury from society of your peers is picked. And then the case is presented by the prosecution. And the prosecution does its best job to convince the jury without a shadow of a doubt, you are guilty of the charges. The defense, being allowed to hear the prosecution's best case, think it's a chance to respond to be able to try to show that those accusations are not valid, that those this, the charges are not actually accurate. And then, as in the case in every jury trial, after the final arguments have been made, they leave it with the jury. And the jury goes in this private room that nobody else is allowed in, and they begin to talk. Are they guilty? Are they not? Have they done the crime as they're being charged with, or have they not? And everybody outside that juror's room is sort of waiting and anticipating. How do we think they'll decide? What are they going to do? 
How are they going to declare? What, what will be their verdict? And some juries, surprisingly, like, are in there for just a couple hours, and they come back, and they announce their decision. Like, wow, that didn't take long. We thought that would take longer. Other jurors can take, can take a long time. There's one example in 2003 in Oakland, California, of a jury that took 55 days to come to the conclusion that they came to. Now, just to put that in context, that's almost three months. That's 11 weeks of deliberations before they finally reach their decision. Friends, you do not have to wait your entire lifetime to wonder what God's verdict about you will be when you die. God in the doctrine of justification declares the sinner righteous today and forgiven forevermore that there will be no future punishment or wrath that they will ever receive or receive presently at that point as well. The doctrine of justification is God declaring the sinner righteous. It's him dropping the gavel. It's him declaring, not because of what a jury of your peers has said about you, hoping you can kind of stack the deck with people who might like you and relate to you and connect with you. It's actually the judge, God himself, and God declares the sinner righteous. He declares pardon. You are free to go. I can find nothing, I can find you guilty of no charge against you. That's exactly what justification does. It is the present declaration of God's future conclusion. We are declared righteous who have put our faith in Christ. Those who have been justified by the blood of Christ will be saved from God's wrath. Think of Romans chapter 5, verse 9. It reads, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's no wringing of your hands, no biting of your fingernails, no sort of hoping to stack the deck. You can rest. Rest. People are declared righteous by Faith. Earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul writing to another church in the city of Rome, listen to what he says. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Look in your own Bibles. You're in Galatians chapter 2. Jump down to chapter 3. Look at what it says in verse 6. It's like this isn't new. This is old stuff. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, jump down to verse 11. What does it say there? Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Well, the question is, believe God in what? Have faith in what? Just a generic religious sort of, I'm a 
kind of a faith for it. I'm like a spiritual person. No, he says it in verse 16. Go back to Galatians chapter two, verse 16. Look at what he says here. How does he describe it? He says, through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, verse 16, justified by faith in Christ. He directs and commends not the practice of faith, but the object of the faith. I ask you the question. Into whom and what do you put your faith for God's forgiveness of you? It's a remarkable reality. Nothing, no works of the law. Some of you perhaps come from a Roman Catholic background. Perhaps even today you're a practicing Roman Catholic. I think in fairness to you historically and theologically presently, you should be aware at least of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So this is not a comment about persons. This is a comment about teaching. Historically, what was really a reality back in the 1500s is that by then, after centuries of the gospel coming and being buried under church tradition and church councils and church declarations, so often people were being led astray, kind of in the way that you see here in Galatians, that they're putting their hope in the works of the law. If they had done enough penance, if they had done enough sacraments, if they had believed enough, if they have tried enough, that they'll do enough, that God will sort of declare them righteous. And even Martin Luther himself was a Roman Catholic priest trying endlessly to try to please God through enough confession and enough confession and enough confession and hoping that in his sacrament of, of confession and penance that God would forgive him. And then coming across texts like this in Galatians chapter two, verse 16, Romans chapter one and other texts, it's like God opened their eyes. Someone hit the light switches and turned on the light in that dark room and then so many people realized, oh, it's nothing I can do to earn God's credit. It's only what Christ has done. And not just my faith in him plus my sacraments. It's my faith in Christ alone because of his grace alone and for his glory alone, according to scripture alone. This created a wild storm. This cleared in the gospel went viral. The Roman Catholic Church got nervous and began to organize bodies and councils of people together to try to put, a, put the fire out of Reformation, and they could not. One such gathering was in the 1500s of, known as the Council of Trent of the Roman Catholic Church to respond to the teaching that came from this Protestant Reformation. They issued many statements and declarations that clear up how a person is forgiven. This included declarations against the teaching that man was saved by faith alone because of his grace, God's grace alone. Listen to one of the declarations they made, canon number 24. You can look it up yourself. It says the following. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works but that those works are merely the fruits and the signs of justification obtained, which is what we believe as Christians, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. Like, I don't know what that word anathema means. It means cursed. The church's teaching is saying, if you believe in anything other than salvation plus works, then you are to be cursed. Paul basically is saying here in Galatians 2, fine. 
to be cursed by the church but to be accepted by God, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because at the end of the day, I'm here to please God. In fact, go back, if you would, to Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 10. What does Paul again say here? Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Bringing us back to our text in chapter 2, Paul, after verse 16, goes into verses 17 and 18. Basically, what he's saying here in verses 17 and 18 of Galatians chapter 2 is that Paul's opponents argued that since justification by faith eliminated the law, that it would just therefore encourage people to live sinfully. Like if you remove the law from people, then they're going to go say, well, fine, I can do whatever I want. And then they're going to accuse Christ as actually being a facilitator of sin. That's what the accusation is here. You can see that in verse 17. Is Christ in a servant of sin? He says, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. When you do not follow the clearly given instructions of something that you should do, there are going to be consequences, depending on what it is that you're not doing correctly. So, if you are given a recipe for baking chocolate chip cookies and you see the instructions there, but you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like salt. And you put a bunch of extra salt in that. I hope you enjoy those cookies by yourself because no one's going to eat them with you. They're going to taste horrible. But then there's also, what about collecting evidence from a crime scene? There's a certain protocol and process. If you don't follow the instructions that have been taught in criminal investigation, a criminal will go free, potentially to recreate the crime again at some other place where someone else will be a victim. You must follow the rules and the instructions carefully. Driving to a destination that you feel like, I mean, I know Waze says this, I know Apple Maps says this, but I, I know better. All right, enjoy driving into the canal or spending some time in some other faraway place in the middle of the Everglades, arriving at some parking lot that's not where you intended to be. Oh, honestly, sometimes those apps take you there as well. Providing the right medicine in the right dose, if you don't follow those instructions carefully, people will die. People will die if you do not give them the right medicine in the right dose. At the young age of one and a half, Emily Jerry was diagnosed with a massive abominable tumor and thankfully endured numerous surgeries and rigorous chemotherapy routine before finally being declared cancer-free. Oh, what great news. But just to be sure, the doctors encouraged Chris and his wife, Emily's parents, to continue with Emily's last scheduled chemotherapy session, a three-day treatment that would begin on her second birthday. On the morning of her final day of three days of treatment, a pharmacy technician prepared the IV bag for her, filling it with more than 20 times the recommended dose of sodium chloride. Within hours, Emily was on life support and eventually declared brain dead. Emily's story is not unique, sadly. 
In 2016, John Hopkins Hospital released a study that said every year, about 250,000 people in the United States die because of medical mistakes. That's 684 people a day dying because of medical mistakes. It makes it the third highest cause of death after heart disease and cancer. Friends, why do we need gospel clarity? Why do we need to follow the instruction that God has given clear in his word? Because heaven and hell are on the line. If you don't have it, the understanding of the gospel clarity, then you will not be forgiven. That's why so commonly, so repeatedly, so regularly at Grace Church, we want to be very clear what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Because to get it wrong is to come at the loss of life, not just physically, but eternally. But also, if you don't communicate it clearly to others, they cannot be forgiven. This takes us to our second lesson, why you want gospel comfort. Why you want gospel clarity, why you want gospel comfort. This takes us now to verses 19 and 20 through 21. Paul says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Friends, we come now to what is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. In fact, when I was in college, I was dating Danelle. We were not yet married. And I was just, you know, I had not been raised in a Christian family. I got saved as a teenager. Had a couple years of difficult times in my early college time and just recommitted my life to Christ. I want to live for Christ. I want my life to matter for Christ. And came across Galatians. I'm reading Galatians and I, verse 20 stuck out to me. I was like, what is this text? And so I did this crazy thing. I had first had her father, who is not only a plumber, but also a woodworker. I had him take and make a giant cross. When I say giant cross, I mean it probably stood about 10 feet tall, however many feet wide. I was like, hey, could you make this like rough cross for me? I want to put that on my place. Like I come home and I see it and I leave and I see it. I was living on my own at the time, have done so since I was 19 here in South Florida. And I want to see it every time I walk into the door, every time I walk out of the door. He's like, okay. But for me, that wasn't enough. I came across Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay. So then, this will date me to some of you like, I don't know what technology you're talking about. There's this thing called overhead projectors. <laughs> Young kids will have to Google that. Overhead projectors took a white sheet, pinned it on the garage door in the garage, turned the lights on, turned the overhead projector, and I said, babe, and we were boyfriend, girlfriend. I maybe didn't say babe then. I'm not sure. Today, it's my babe. I said, Danelle. I'm gonna stand up here in the shadow of this and I want you to create a silhouette of my body that I wanna overlay over the top of the cross. So it's like a picture of me on the cross, just a silhouette. 
She's like, okay. And then I took that sheet and I pinned it on my wall in my place. I loved it. I was just reminded how much I wanted to be reminded. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm all in on Jesus. I want Christ to be glorified in me. Some of you might be wondering, do you, do you still have the cross? No. Do you still have the sheet? No. I, still, I do have the t-shirt, though. We made these at Grace Church about a year and a half ago off of this verse. Galatians 2, verse 20. That's why I'm wearing it today. There was a time to like, you know, wrap the t-shirt. This is it. Because what Paul is saying here to Peter about himself that he's reminding Peter of is the same thing you and I need to be reminded of every single day. I mean, look back at the text. Look at what he says here. I have been crucified with Christ. It's a past tense declaration. Paul's like, my old self is gone. I'm no longer who I used to be. I have been treated in a way that I should not be, and Christ was treated in the way he should not have been. He's making a declaration that Christ, the righteous one, was treated as if he had received all of the punishment that Paul had ever committed. All of the sin, rather, that Paul had ever committed. And the same thing for Eric Bancroft and the same thing for you if you're a Christian. He's like, that's old me. I've been crucified. My sin has been paid for. And then he goes on, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's a, it's a joy for me when I get a chance to interact with people in different environments. You know, I'm working out with people or I'm talking to people, having conversations with people, helping move or just, just general things. Just like, and they encounter and they're like, oh man, you're so nice. And quite honestly in Miami, it doesn't take much to stick out. Like, right? You're like, you just be a nice person. Like, what is wrong with you? You're not from here. You're a tourist. I'm like, no, I actually live here. And they're like, you're such a nice person. And every now and then, depending on the relationship, I get a chance to kind of slow, slow the conversation down and say, listen, just so you know, that's not me. In my flesh, like just in my desire, like my own kind of old man, like I want to go. I want to go. You want some of me? I want some of you. But then I realize Christ in me. If there's anything good in me, that's Christ in me. He is bringing out in me what he has begun in me. I am a new creature in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Old things have passed away, but all things have become new. Then he continues, it says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul does not depart from the gospel. Christian, do not leave the gospel. Every day is a chance to go back to what do you believe? Not first, what will you do? I live by faith in the Son of God, this ongoing reality. Too often Christians are talking too much in the past about their faith in Christ. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was an adult, when I, earlier, I'm like, okay, that's great. Talk to me about today. Talk to me about today. What does it mean for you to today identify, I believe in him, the resurrected Savior? And he continues in the verse text. Again, all this is in verse 20. Who, here it is, loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, friends, just to give you a sense of that, go back to chapter one. Look at verse 13. Here's Paul's testimony. He's telling the churches in Galatia. Verse 13, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. 
and I tried to destroy it. Verse 14, and if that wasn't enough, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul is blown away as he reflects on where he came from before Christ saved him. Can I ask you as a Christian, when was the last time you marveled at God's forgiveness of you? I mean, I hope you recognize each and every Sunday is like a chance to like have that opportunity. Those songs are not just like emotive moments of kind of mystical imaginations. It's a reflection of grand truth. God saves sinners. And you are one and so am I. And it's sort of the, the, the reality of, you know, if you can look back at verse 16, how often he says, through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's like, not to the works of the law, not to the works of the law. It's just three different times. Well, notice how often in verse 20, Paul goes from like we to the I. He starts it earlier, verse 18, I rebuild what's torn down. I proved to myself to be a transgressor. The law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. But then verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Me and gave himself up for me. The truth is the gospel, the gospel is the good news for everyone. And the church has been entrusted with it to protect it, to preserve it, to proclaim it. It is a corporate conversation. We testify to that in our baptism, but it has a personal application to everybody who's believed in Christ. The reality is, Paul understands what you and I understand personally. Self-doubt creeps in. Self-justification creeps in. These are often Satan's devices to get us to turn to another gospel, although there is no other gospel, Paul says in Galatians 1. Satan is the father of lies, according to Jesus in John 8, verse 44. He is the enemy of the Christian freedom. The devil is preeminently the tempter and the accuser. His very name, Satan, means accuser. He is called the accuser of our brothers in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And he stands ready to whisper venomous accusations at us no matter what we do. Friend, if you're a Christian and you've struggled forgetting the gospel because of what you've done and Satan keeps bringing accusation after accusation against you. Let me encourage you with this quote from Martin Luther. Listen to what he says. When talking about battling Satan with his lies, he says this, set yourself against Satan and to say, what is it to you? After all, I did not sin against you, but against my God. I am not your sinner. So what right do you have over me? Therefore, if I have sinned, and what you are accusing me of is truly a sin, for Satan often terrifies the mind with imaginary sins, then I have sinned against the God who is merciful and patient. I have not sinned against you, nor against the law, nor against my conscience, nor against any man, nor against any angel, but against God alone. But God is not a devil. He is not a devourer or a carnivore as you are, terrifying and threatening with death. He is merciful to sinners, perfect and incorruptible, faithful and righteous. 
Against such a God have I sinned, and I have not sinned against a tyrant or a murderer. Therefore, as a tyrant and a murderer, you have no right over me. God has the right, who is kind and merciful, and, has therefore, and who therefore forgives the sin of those who confess. Oh, friend. What just a helpful reorientation. No matter what Satan could bring against you and whisper these lies against you, meet him face on and tell him the reality of the truth. He has no grounding to which he can accuse you. He is not God. He determines no law. Only God has the righteous ability to do that, and God has declared forgiven, pardoned. He has declared you free for your faith in Christ alone. Think of the implications of this. Determine fellowship with Christians is based on the gospel, not on other subfeatures. Christian, remember, Christ loves you and died for you. The profundity of that is not how special you are. Catch this, catch this, lest you twist this truth to be too self-promoting. The key here in Galatians 2 verse 20 is not how special you are, it's in how forgiving Christ is. He would love you. He would forgive you. It's not to elevate yourself and your own sense of self-importance as if, wow, God picked you to be on his team. Isn't God glad he's got you with him? It's, wow, God picked me. He loved me. The humility that comes with that. Your worth is not determined by what you know and what you have done or who you are related to, any work or family or athletics or looks or intelligence. So this is why you want gospel comfort. Here's why you want gospel comfort. Because condemnation is common. Because motivation is often confused. Condemnation often says, I don't measure up. Others make me feel like I don't measure up. There's somebody here who's read the Bible more than you. Godlier than you. More humble than you. Happier than you. Believes more than you. Been a Christian longer than you. If you keep looking to them by comparison, you'd be like, I don't stand a chance. Friend, look not only not to them, nor to yourself, look to Christ. For in Christ you find love. Again, Martin Luther helps us here. Listen to what he says. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is there, I shall be also. Oh, friend, what more could be said than sinners saved by grace alone? For those of you who do not have that confidence Would you have it today by turning to Christ? Would you understand what we have learned? Understand the gospel clearly brings comfort to you for the rest of your life. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. 
God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.